Now, I always pronounce Anais Nin wrong, or Anais. What? Anais. Anais Nin. Yeah, there you go. Anais Nin. Yes. So you say Anais. Okay. Anais. Anais. All right. My mispronunciation of that will be the intro. Anais. Hi, this is Kim Krizan, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. And on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Kim Krizan. She's the author of Spy in the House of Anais Nin. She's also the co-writer and creator of the Before Sunrise films and author of Original Sins, Trade Secrets of the Femme Fatale. Kim, hi. Hi, how are you, Tony? I'm a lot better after I did the intro. That's the hardest part. (laughs) Is it really? Is it? Getting going. Getting going. Yeah, it's like, it's like, yeah, getting going, like wanting to get out of bed. You're just going, this bed feels so good. And then it's just like, what? Oh, wait, I have appointments. I think that's true with writing in general. It's the getting going that's a bit hard and a bit scary. And then once you get it right, and then once you once you're rolling, then suddenly you're in a groove and things get easier and easier and they flow better. Amen. Yes, it's a that that it's the scariness of the blank page. Uh And then I talked to uh, there's this author I had on Robert Crace uh, some episodes ago, who's got like 22 novels out. And he said that every single time he feels the same panic and fear that he had on the first novel, but he just knows he's going to have that panic and fear, and he just gets in it. I think what happens is as you get going, your subconscious starts working for you and with you, and as right, and as even when you're away from the project, your subconscious continues. Like when you're sleeping, when you're, but the, at, at the very beginning, right, you're hit with that fear. Yeah. And so, and it, right, the blank page. So it hasn't, it hasn't started yet, that, that uh, activity of the, of the subconscious. And once it gets going, then it's your friend. And then you kind of can't stop the thing. It's like a runaway train sometimes where you're, you, you're just, it, it soaks up your whole life after a while. It's just taking over your mind. So. And it's... Um and then there's those spots where your subconscious isn't helping you because your left brain's kind of sitting there going, like, knocking on it, going, no, 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 no. Stop being creative. Yeah, I, that's what I get. I get my, uh, I get the, the dueling brain fighting each yes. other where the left brain is like, well, you can't do that. The right brain's all, no, no, let's go, let's go, let's play. Let's right. just throw sand around and see what happens. Right. I, so my method is to, that I tell myself that no one's going to read what I write and I also tell myself I have permission to write a piece of crap and that loosens things up quite a bit if I imagine an audience I might freeze up you know so I just tell myself nah this is just for me you know and especially when you're writing uh, something about Anais Nin where it's that's I feel like the responsibility of that feels more than writing a novel Uh, I don't know if that's the case for you. you why do you feel that I would feel because I want to. I would want to do Anais right. Like if I wrote something about Henry Miller, or if I was doing kind of a more, um, like a, a piece that's uh, something that meant a lot to me about somebody. I maybe it's codependency issues, but I feel like I would have to just do all the service to them as much as possible. In a weird way, I feel a bit like a lawyer who's exonerating oh. my client. 
in a weird way yeah I mean I don't know if I've thought about that until this second but I do feel this this desire to be true to her I'm I'm empathetic and sympathetic I'm also objective about her and um so yeah, I, I do want to be true to her and right, right. I don't have the freedom to go wherever I want with this. I have to. I'm trying to stay true to uh, who she was. So yeah, I understand what you mean. The responsibility. Yeah. And so, when was the first time she came on your radar in your life? I was in a bookstore when I was a college student, about 20 years old or so. And I was in a bookstore in Los Angeles. And, or actually it was Whittier, and I uh, had never heard of her. I loved bookstores. It was this tiny little place, I d and I didn't have any m money at the time. It was after class, and I always went and checked out, you know, what was new in the, in the literature section, and I stumbled across this childhood diary of a young girl who had begun writing in 1914 at age 11 as she was coming across the Atlantic Ocean by boat with her mother and brothers and I was just thumbing through this diary and I couldn't believe how well this little girl could write uh, you know I'm thumbing through looking at the pictures there's her little wistful face and I discovered that she was coming to America because her father had abandoned the family. Now I had almost no money at the time so to buy the book I had to spend all of my <laughs> week's allowance for lunches to buy this book and I couldn't yet pronounce her name correctly. Uh -huh. It's because it's a French name. I don't, know how, I don't know how that two dot thing over the eye works, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I, um, I remember I stood there and I bought the book and then I looked up and I saw that she had erotica as well there Delta Venus and I thought who is this person I you know this little girl later goes on to write erotica so I just absolutely got hooked I remember I asked my teacher soon after one of my literature teachers do you know who this person is and we had a brief conversation and I realized she you know she was she had some degree of fame but this was her childhood diary, and I discovered that her diaries just extended throughout her entire life. And boy, I was just hooked at that point. I just because I loved um, loved reading, loved literature, and uh, this was a story that just extended and extended and extended without um, the tight conclusion. Because I have to just keep going. So I was about 20 or so. Wow. See, I first heard of her because uh, I found Henry Miller. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you know, like I found him, right? No, no, yeah. actually. Other <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just, wonderful. yeah, yeah. And, I, and the first book, I, that, this is when I started going to the library and like going, oh, wait, reading is kind of fun. And I read Crazy Cock. And, uh, and I was like, okay, this guy's interesting. And then after a while, oh, hold on, we got to. Yeah, we got a we got a, a Libra. It's a Libra. It's a Libra birthday. Really? What what are Li what do Libras uh what what's their thing? Are they kind of cheerful and balanced because it's the scales? Really? Yeah, it's okay. the scales. So someone over there is cheerful and balanced. <laughs> 
See, I'm a, I'm a Cancer, so they kind of call cancer. they call us emotional wrecks, though. But my Moon's in Gemini. No, no, they're not. No, absolutely not. No. Well, well, I am, but maybe the other ones aren't. <laughs> but Henry Miller was. So you discovered him when when you were like a teenager? Oh no, I was in my twenties. So okay, I grew okay. up in a really strict like religion where I couldn't read go. stuff. So yeah, that. So I. Same here. Really? Yeah. Oh. Same here. Oh, do you do you think it might be the same one? Should we say it at the same time and find out what if it's the same? Okay, okay. It's the same. One, two, three. Jehovah's, Jehovah's Witnesses. Witness. No way. Are you serious? Are you serious? So you went to the library to escape? So did I. Whoa. Oh, and then you got in. You grew up Jehovah's Witness. Yes, and then you got into punk rock too. We're so weird. <laughs> That was awesome. I never thought in a thousand years you would say Jehovah's Witness. I didn't. Th- I thought you were going to say something else. <laughs> See, this. Do you know what this did for us, though? It it ended up making us creative, right? Yeah. Well, what the Jehovah's Witnesses, what, for me, they were smashing my creativity and smashing yeah. joy as much as possible. And I really believed, and I stayed in it for a long time. Yeah. So when I finally was like starting to release just a little bit, it was. I was like, felt like I was t- just touching something that I that that was just uh, absolute need for me yeah I I understand what you're saying I think all those years of repression though extreme repression it's like a it's like forces creating some kind of gem stone because you're so damn repressed and you you have it's like you have only a few choices it's like either you're going to shoot up the school or you're going to go nuts or you're going to become you're going to create something out of that repression right or you just get married and stay sad and stay in it and nod your head yes and which a lot of people they did we didn't do that though we didn't do that Okay, just to just to let the listeners know, there was no pre. Uh, no. <laughs> no. I, yeah. That is really weird. That, that never crazy. happens. That never happens. So that was in Southern California. Yeah. So yeah. So my mother uh, became a Jehovah's Witness when I was eleven. How was it? Were you from birth? Three. Oh God. Um, I was 11, and it was really catastrophic for me personally. I'm, I, you know, I know it was for you as well, and. And just sitting there, all those meetings, right? Oh, God, yeah. How many meetings a week? Oh, my God. Um, and I would try to work it out in my head, like this stuff about... Uh, for, for I started to see humor. Um, for, for one thing, like being told pretty much every week that women were, you know, the weaker sex, right? The weaker vessel. The weaker vessel. And that, uh, and having these kind of dummy, dumb guys say that. I know. Right? Yeah. And, um, and we weren't allowed to go up to the podium and speak. Yeah. And yeah. this, I started seeing this in some part of my recesses of my mind. I started seeing this as hysterically funny. Like the, the, the whole Eve thing, I was like, my God, that's a lot of power. That one woman gets the first man to eat of the fruit and it destroys all of mankind and I thought now that's kind of funny you know but but my my um my I I oh wow it it was really really something to survive but my refuge became reading so my so I believed because I was in at three so I didn't really have any like I never really had any reasoning power so that, that you had. It was just like this Armageddon's coming, that's it. 
scary. Yeah, yeah. Terrifying. Yeah, and then um, and then I found punk rock on after the Tuesday night Bible study uh, on KPFA in uh, Berkeley. They had maximum rock and roll, and that would play at nine o'clock at night. And I had my little headphones by my radio, and I would listen to maximum rock and roll. Um, just constant, every every Tuesday, and then I found out about college radio, and then I that's when I learned about music, and I was finding out these like bands that were just like, oh my God, there was this anger that I had inside of me that they're expressing. It was years later when I was um, I was grieving a suicide of one of my friends who got disfellowshipped. Oh God! Oh my God! Oh uh, yeah. happens a lot. Isn't it crazy? There's a lot of suicides. Yeah. 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 So the elders were kind of like, you can't grieve him. They were like coming down on me hard. No, that's kind of evil. But it's also great because then I just, at that time, I was like, I can't, I'm I'm having ideological suicidal thoughts myself. They're not helping me. I went to the library psychology section and I pulled out Tony Robbins and I was pulling out just, and Tony Robbins like taught me a lot because I had no clue of psychological reference because you're not even supposed to go near like, the satanic worldly knowledge, right? Were you a teenager at this point? No, I was in my 20s. Okay. Yeah, I was early 20s. Okay, early 20s. Yeah. Early 20s, got it. Yeah, and um, and then that's when I kind of found, like, there was a poetry section, and then I started really connecting. Yeah. And then I found out about, um, for some odd reason, James Baldwin uh, was my first novel I ever read. And after I read that, I went, oh, my God, the... Reading is because the Jehovah's Witnesses yeah. make you read constantly uh, and utter the boring. worst boring oh, s- oh, stuff. Yeah. And you got to go three times a week and study the boring stuff that you yeah. read. And then you have to go preach the boring stuff. So I finally was like, wait, reading isn't like torturous? What? We can communicate? Yeah, because it wasn't actually reading anything nourishing and it wasn't actually studying anything it was indoctrination and the stuff is written at such a low level like a third grade level boring and and you're not even like there's no sense of like symbol it's not a symbol it's a reality this really happened and though so so and you're not allowed to ask a question about it like a sincere question or you're yanked in the back right Right. Yeah, and they start they start questioning you for apostasy, and then that's when they'll take you away from your family and your whole social network. That they've told you do not hang out with anyone who's not a Jehovah's Witness and don't you know extracurricular and all that stuff. Yeah, good times. Oh, good time. Yeah, I mean it's kind of an amazing. You know that Hemingway said the best thing for a creative person is a bad childhood. Yeah. Did you know that? No. Yeah. So I mean, this is like rich, fertile soil here. This tor- pure torture, but. I, uh, I, for me, books and the library, I actually, I got in trouble for walking down to the library. What kid in America gets in trouble for, I'm age like 12, 13, gets in trouble for walking down to the library and coming home with an armload of books? I did, right? Oh, yeah. I was in trouble because it was, you know, the worldly, this worldly, right? But I... I, I swear, it's like the reading was a refuge for me, yeah. a salvation, oh, yeah. really. And I, I remember reading uh, East of Eden by Steinbeck, um, just just these big, and so I was spending my summers reading and reading and reading, and that was a refuge. I fortunately, at that, so you know the loneliness of being a Jehovah's oh, Witness, yeah. because you're not allowed to associate with kids at school? Yeah. 
even though they might invite you to something, you have to say no. Oh my god! And I had I had to say no all the time, and they would people the kids would really get upset, especially when I was like in elementary school. And then my parents would have to go to their parents and go, look, we don't believe in bar mitzvahs and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like alienating me even more and more and more through the whole thing. No Christmas, no birthdays. He, this birthday thing over here, the reason why we got a little excited was because we didn't have birthdays. Oh, my God. And then we talked about growing up Jehovah's Witness right after that. How, how the synchronicity yes. of the whole thing. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it was, it's like a, it was like a desert. It was really like a weird, very Kafka-esque kind of situation I mean I, I read a lot of Kafka back then too I so in my late teens I stumbled upon a little group of Jehovah's Witness kids who secretly liked punk rock did you, they had to keep it a secret and but we somehow shared this information we were good kids you know we weren't we weren't we weren't doing anything wrong but we liked our punk rock and we started going to shows and you know no one knew that we were doing this right but my first show was x oh what a great show oh my god x i'm just like heaven right i'm just amazing uh so so it was just like going into another world i still love x and um you know and that just opened a door but but it was dangerous because it no one could find out we were going to shows even though we weren't doing anything bad at the shows we weren't doing anything bad on the way to the shows we yeah. were at the shows and they were punk rock shows yeah. <laughs> right yeah. and, then, and we were so innocent i remember i took so i kind of did take like jehovah's witness friends to see bands you know yeah. when i was um and I never really, I started to find my little ways of getting around things. Because if they didn't know what the band was and they had no, you know, this is pre-Nirvana, you know, they didn't even know what a punk rock was except for, so they would just be like, oh, uh, what's a, what's a Operation Ivy? And I'd be like, uh. so I took a bunch of Jehovah's Witnesses to Operation Ivy and people would kill those Jehovah's Witnesses because they, they didn't even know who yeah. they were. And I took, a whole, I took a whole bunch to see the Gun Club, one of their last oh, uh, tours. Absolutely. Yeah, and it just, yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that was a, that was a really fun time in, in my life. Yeah. To, it, was, it, was, um, it was another kind of salvation, the yeah. books and punk rock. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I, I don't think I would be alive if that if I didn't find those two. I think I would have done myself in, and then that that just opened the world to me, and it went, Tony, here's more, and it just kind of was given to me. Art saves. Yes. It saves people. Yeah. yeah. It, when when someone when someone finds a book or a poem or, uh, you know, music or something that speaks to them, it can lift them out of all kinds of hell, you know. Yeah. You feel you feel like you're not alone in the world, yeah. and I mean that's the whole. I think that's the whole point of it, exactly. right? Touch, con- commu- connecting, yeah. right? Oh yeah. So yeah. Especially as Jehovah's Witnesses, because I, I, there's the connecting with other people, like even doing this interview. Or, you know, where I, even before I knew you were, you grew up a Jehovah's Witness. All I want to do is kind of like catch up on all those years that I couldn't have thoughtful conversations with people, oh and it's just God. like. And I just love it. It's Maybe that's what it is partially with me is that I can never, 
could never have a real conversation as long as that we were in that yeah. church because I, I, I would try to ask a question and get like you, like you would get in trouble because um, it would be uh, too dangerous to ask that question. Like, do you really think that God wants everybody to die on the, you know, I mean, just that whole Armageddon thing just yeah. scared me to death. Oh, yeah, me too. I, I think it still scares me a little bit once in a while in the back of my brain, and I have to kind of go, wait a second, no, that's that weird fear emotions coming from what's ingrained in the back there. Yeah, it's traumatizing for a child to be told that God is going to destroy everybody but Jehovah's Witnesses, and then only the good Jehovah's, right? Because did, wasn't there a big deal at your congregation that he, God could see who the real Jehovah's Witnesses were? And if you were a phony, or if you were doing bad things on the side, then you weren't going to make it. You were, you were going to see everybody you know suffer and die and then you were going to be one of them and I so I thought I was going to die because I was masturbating (laughs) (laughs) right oh they made such a big deal you know they had a thing in our congregation where they they um did a big announcement that someone had confessed to that? No way. Yes, they did. They 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 said. Did they say that someone confessed to masturbation from the stage? Yes, they did. Wow. He, oh, how shaming. That's right. He was a young man who was about to get married, oh and so it ru- it kind of ruined his wedding. Oh my god. He was, and he was like, I I would say about a twenty five year old or something. Oh, they wrecked man. the wedding. It was oh. horrifying, horrifying. Oh, they're, they're, never, that, is, that is the most amazing shame I have ever heard that it came from the platform. See, I thought maybe if I made it through Armageddon that we would be gathered up and have to confess in front of everyone. That was like my weird stuff. But they did it there and yeah. before a wedding. They're, Jehovah's Witnesses are so good at fucking up any joy that comes around. It's, they're, they're really good about it. Yeah, I think their thing is... Par- I th- I've always thought... Like the Catholic guilt thing, uh, the the equivalent with Jehovah's Witnesses is is paranoia, yeah, right? Because it's very Kafkaesque, right? Or or Orwellian or something, because there's a Big Brother who's watching you. And I read a study though once that said that um, kids raised in Jehovah's Witnesses are really creative. Really? Yeah, I did. Yeah, because all the repression, there's you've got to find a way to survive it in your mind. You've got to burrow your way out, your tunnel your way out somehow, and that takes a lot of of mental and emotional work. And so if you're successful in doing so, first of all, you're strong, you know, but you're you you've created a pathway. So you're you're a creative person. Isn't that crazy? I really like that. That uh-huh. kind of, that kind of settles me a little bit, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the the thought that maybe you got something. I mean, God, it's like out of all that, out of all that pain, you got something good. Well, I also so I had a novel. I wrote a novel about growing up in the Jehovah's Witnesses. It was a love story, and then it became a film, and Eric Stoltz directed it, and it became a lovely film. And so if I didn't have, I've had this weird grappling. If I didn't have that experience, I wouldn't, I feel like I wouldn't have the story to tell and like the gratitude of all these people who kind of came in to make the story flourish, you know? Oh my God. Was that, was that, did it feel like something was lifted from you when you were able to do that and get it out in the world? Actually, no. Then I. (laughs) (laughs) What did it do? What did it do? 
I um, I didn't even realize, but I like after when we were in post production before release, I went into a really deep depression, and I've had to really kind of like sift through exactly what what my feelings were to try to get through it. And I think one of them was part of it. One of them was that I was giving the Jehovah's Witnesses a bad name, even though even though the even though the book and the novel didn't they, they weren't written out of anger. There there was like a love story. I really stayed on it being a love story. But I was there was still that twinge in there, and a it's guilt? it was yeah, a guilt. Yeah, guilt, a guilt, and just um, just ingrained. Just you yeah. know, it's it just it doesn't go away. But there was partly that, and then partly when all your dreams come true, they actually it, don't feel it. You know, <laughs> so there's yeah. there's there's so many layers to it that I feel like I got out of that cloud about a year and a half ago. But it was a very dark cloud. That's really interesting. I, I no, I understand what you mean. It's like when it hits the world, you don't feel it. I get I get that because you were processing it in your own time, in your own way, and the world and other people have absolutely nothing to do with it, right? I, I, I understand that. I understand that. Yeah, and then people, yeah, and people think, oh, it must have been therapeutic to write the book. I'm like, no, are you kidding? It was yeah. like, because I, was, I had to get into these characters' heads. I had to be empathetic to elders. At first, I was like, oh, I'm going to name it kind of after that dick elder over there and that dick elder over there. And then all of a sudden, it was like, oh, wait, I, had to, I have to create three-dimensional characters to make this compelling. Yeah. So I can't just be you know throwing gunshots at people that sounds really interesting uh, psychologically to me because you as an adult have to get back into the mind frame of being a teeny tiny brutal brutal, (laughs) teeny tiny child and you're being the word they use is inculcated inculcated but it's indoctrinated you're being indoctrinated that you're not supposed to turn away from it. Do, do, do you remember the expression dog going back to your own vomit? Oh my God. Is that not the ugliest expression? So, so even if you became a Jehovah's Witness as a three-year-old, if you leave it, you are a quote-unquote dog going back to its own vomit. It's the ugliest expression. Right. And, well, I'm kind of a human that's going back to his own feces, I guess. They would probably say that. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I, I think it's wonderful that you... I've, I've thought about... I have stories to tell, too, about the whole... We call it the JW, the whole JW thing. Yeah. And I haven't done it yet. I've thought about it. Some of the stories are really funny, but they're, it's still so damn painful for me. Yeah. Right? Oh, it yeah, it's it's hard and it's like the last thing the last thing like after I wrote the book and got the book out, you know, and then I was just like, "Oh, okay, cool. I don't have to deal with this again." And then there was TV interest. And I'm all, "Okay." And then I worked on that for a year. That died. Okay, don't have to deal with this again. And then we got the film interest, and I'm like, "Okay. Here we go all the way." And it but it was a beautiful experience and the yeah, the being on set and just working around all those people, it was just I, I was astonished that they got the, the people freak out that they that all the actors had no idea what of the Jehovah's Witnesses. How did you explain it to them? I, a lot of them I didn't have to. And a lot of it was just they had to find the repression. Yeah. They had to find the emotion and the repression. Yeah. And even our, our uh, the lead Sasha Feldman, he even asked me. He's like, "Should I go to the Kingdom Hall?" I said, "You know what? I don't think you need to. I think you just need to find the place in yourself that feels what what the character feels, and then just work from there." That was like my loose advice, and so. Does the Kingdom Hall not look like a dentist office to you? <laughs> <laughs> it 
There is nothing beautiful about the damned Kingdom Hall. I'd rather go to the dentist three times a week. <laughs> it is the most, it's sterile. It's not beautiful. There's no beautiful, gorgeous stained glass or gorgeous sta- or architecture or, or even like quaint, beautiful, like hardwood with, with the lovely. No, it is like the the crappiest dentist office there's nothing it just it to me like it makes god out to be just really like the whole and and it's all kind of like legalistic talk about there's nothing uplifting poetic you know like you know it's it's just sort of like reading a a a legal document right yeah yeah that's why i didn't know reading was fun (laughs) And then when you discovered it, you were like a kid in a candy store. I went nuts, yeah. And and then I was still kind of, I was kind of fading out as a Jehovah's Witness, but like Jehovah's Witnesses would come by and they would see my books and they would go, they they had no reference, but they would just go, well, we hope you're reading all your uh, all your literature. It was what they say about the all the publications the the Watchtower Society is pounding down on your throat. They just said, I hope you're reading all your literature before you get to that. And I said, oh yes, of course, brother. When I wasn't. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I think I I think I was a really good girl, and I I read all my Jehovah's Witness and literature, and I you know how you're supposed to underline oh, they, yeah. those damned answers, and then raise your hand. I did all that stuff, but inside I was always grappling so hard with with like why aren't I interested? And and I clearly see now I was. I was not interested in it because we weren't actually discussing. It was just, it was just indoctrination, and it, like in a really good, say, literature class, people can raise their hand and and ask sincere questions, and everybody can can bat things back and forth. Well, maybe we see it this way, maybe we see it that way. You don't do that in Jehovah's Witness. There's one way, or the highway. So that I think made us like feel that literature was a candy store. Yeah, exactly. I I teach classes now, and I'm like, I want to be challenged, challenge, you know, uh, on writing. And I'm like, you know, yeah, challenge me. That would be great. Let's talk about this. If you disagree, that's awesome. Let's you know, let's work through it. Right. I right exactly. And you know, and Henry Miller, you mentioned him. He wrote the most wonderful short story, and I think it's called. Well, it's not really a short story. It's not like an essay. I think it's called Family Reunion. Have you ever read that? Oh, my God. So he hadn't seen his family in Brooklyn for something like 10 years. He'd been in Paris. And he went back to see the family in Brooklyn. And his, at that point, the, the parents were elderly. The sister was living with the parents. And he clearly saw... Um, that he clearly saw what he had grown up in. His father was a tailor. He was supposed to be a tailor, right, right? And um, he clearly saw all of the family dynamics. And he, I guess he just wept his eyes out because, you know, you know that, is it a Carson McCullers quote? Sometimes I have to go back home to renew my sense of horror. Oh my God! I love that. <laughs> Isn't that good? Because you can't believe a kid survived it, right? Yeah. And here we are. And here we are. Here we are. I um, I think I um, knew that I wanted to be some kind of a writer at a young age. I think I was really young. I liked art. I liked animals. I liked books. 
And I also didn't like the little rule followers at the school. I, I was I was a real quiet kid. Are you talking about the other Jehovah's Witnesses? or no, no, okay. just at school. Yeah, yeah. I, this was before I was a Jehovah's Witness because I became, my mother got involved when I was 11. Okay. So I remember... Um, it was, was like, thanks, right before puberty. Love it! Yeah, good timing, great timing. Um, yeah, I remember in, like, say, first, second, third, fourth, I... I um, I remember I liked the little individualist kids. I liked the I, the ones that were um, a little too anxious to please the teacher, raise their hands, sit in the front row. Oh, yeah, yeah. I couldn't get into that. Yeah. And, and yet, I, it's not because I had any special confidence. I was pretty shy, sat in the back. But I liked the ones who thought for themselves and who... Um, you know, we're, we're sitting in the back and thinking about things. I, those were the kids I liked, and I remember very early on getting pretty excited about writing stories. Um, I remember very early on, it was, uh, I, I might have been first grade or something. It was during the moon stuff. Uh, they hadn't landed on the moon yet. But I remember I wrote a story about what the moon could possibly be made of from the perspective of like a mouse and a, and a, a, like a it's worm. Cheese. Yeah, the mouse thought it was cheese and the little worm thought it was a walnut. And <laughs> yeah, and then finally, I guess it's, um, I, I guess I knew the names of the astronauts who were going to the moon. And so I had their names in the last part of the story that they were going to go find out. You know, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong were going to go find out. And, um, and then I remember with second grade, I wrote a story about a, a rabbit and a tiger who became friends. Um, so I remember having a thing for writing at a very young age. Yeah, animals and art and and writing at a very young age. So what was it, do you think, that your mom uh, was brought in? Like, what was it about your mom that she decided to become a Jehovah's Witness? We um, had moved from, my parents are from South Dakota, small towns, sense of community. My parents came out to Los Angeles. And as you know, it's... There, it's hard to find a sense of community in Los Angeles. It's so spread out. We live in our cars. And we're in our cars for hours a day. <laughs> and so we're, we're just in these little metal pods going down the road. And we don't interact that much. So it's kind of a... Uh, so I believe that then when, when uh, I was born in L.A., my parents moved to Orange County. And there was a kind of sterility in Orange County where she felt lonely and Jehovah's Witness, you know, they come to the door, knock on the door and tell you God cares. And I think they hit her at just the right moment that she needed, she was, she was, you know, going through a little existential crisis and she, they tell her God cares. I think actually she had been searching for a church but they came and then offered to come pick her up and take her to the church and, and you know, sit down with her and be friends with her. Very, very quickly it started getting ugly, though, because they were passing weird judgments. I remember, um, I remember 
I had been given a little cross necklace uh, by a, an aunt oh, of mine. Jehovah's yeah. Witnesses don't believe in the cross. They're Christians, right? But they don't believe in the cross. And they, I remember, even, they even think it's satanic. Uh, they, they'll go to, to demonism on it. Exactly. Yeah. So they made a big deal about my little cross necklace. And, um, and I was watching Bewitched. I got in a lot of trouble for that. Oh. And so uh, they, had, they were making these, they, they were, they were, making my mom uh, fearful that maybe she was making the wrong choice. So we quit going for a brief period and then they came to the door. The, the, the nicest elder, uh, elder would be their version of a minister, right? The nicest elder, and there are like six of them in every damn congregation. <laughs> the nicest one comes to the door and asks if he can talk to us, and he asks what the problem is, and my mom says, my mom bursts into tears, and, you know, they're judging us. They're judging us and making these statements, and just and he, apol he apologizes for them and says he's going to go talk to them, and it was just the perfect, it just hit the spot for my mother. So we went back. Wow. And it was like, God, I wish to God we didn't go yeah. back. But um, we did. And and it was, it was just not, the timing was poor for me because I was going into junior high school, then high school. And then um, Jehovah's Witnesses are not supposed to go to college, as you know. Oh, yeah. I was not supposed to go. I never went. You didn't go, yeah, see? And um, so, you know, they. I went to my father, who's not a Jehovah's Witness, and I asked if I could please go. Oh, sweet. And, and so he's like, well, community college. Fortunately, there was a really good one um, near our house, out in the Orange Groves. And we were on the southern, kind of the southern tip of Orange County at that point. It was the southern tip. Fortunately, it was a great uh, community college, and I had teachers there who taught at USC, and right away, one of the teachers pulled me aside and said, what are you doing here? You shouldn't be here. You should be going to a, you know, you should be going to a really kick-ass school. I burst into tears. Whoa! You know, my, the family, the church, the blah, blah. And she was so comforting to me and just said, it's really interesting that what sensitive kids survive. And that, you know, so I've never forgotten this woman. Yeah. Never forgotten her, Ms. Welch. Yeah. And so she, you know, you know how you have these little moments yes. that you survive because somebody's kind to you. And, and, and it's not a big thing. It takes something as small as that that can change the whole tra trajectory of your life. Oh yeah. yeah, she. I I had no idea that I was any good at anything really. I mean, I I really didn't know. I was so you know you're so pulverized by that point, being told you know you're always doing things wrong, right. and you're so confused and uh, you know that it's that really really mess with your mind. So to have her say that I was really good at this stuff, I, you know, you're really good at this writing stuff, and. And you should you should actually be at a why aren't you in a, on the East Coast at a, that I had, I that's the first time anyone had really told me anything like that I I even had any you know ability like that so so she was a salvation for me Ms Welch yeah wherever you are you know <laughs> yeah great. yeah I had a I had a similar thing I was taking screenwriting classes while I was still kind of towing the line of uh, 
being in the Jehovah's Witness. Because I was married too to a Jehovah's Witness, so I was oh, like, God. yeah, it was oh, it was rough God. going. So I had to deal through that too. But um, wow. but it was funny after the first uh, screenwriting class, the workshop of ten weeks I took with him. It was at a local thing in San Francisco. He pulled me aside and he said, "You're fucking talented and you're funny as hell." But you don't know screen screen structure. I mean, scene structure, and you need to do a lot of work. But he's like, you listen to those people in there, you don't even know what you're doing. You're making everybody laugh when we go through when we read when you we cast your uh, your characters and we read through your screenplays. He's like, so you have something, but you need to keep working on it. And that really like kind of I was like, oh okay, somebody else has acknowledged this. Whereas in the Jehovah's Witnesses, everyone was just like. Oh, that's a nice hobby. Make sure not to talk bad about Jehovah. That was kind of all I got. And also the whole thing that there was kindness out in the quote-unquote world because we're, we're taught that the world is a terrible place, right? Dangerous and full of just evil and Satan. And, and then the kindness from someone who didn't need to be kind to you and didn't need to pull you aside and, and, and just there was he got nothing out of it except just he was kind. So I know I couldn't believe it. I know these people probably saved us, but and, but then I I kind of wonder is the reason why we were good because it had been so repressed in us for so long. Is that part of it? Yeah, I that's a good question. I don't know. And then the other thing is, were we ready for those messages at that time? Where if someone would have told me ten years earlier that you're talented and can do this, I would have went, oh God, no, no, that's just Satan talking to me. Whereas it, I was more open. So I don't know if we get our messages from at the right time or how that works. Like if we got, if I got all my, if I got all the right messages at four years old, that would have like bombarded my mind. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. I don't know if we get the right message. Cause I think perhaps I've had some messages at certain points that I have not really been able to, to take in at the time uh, yeah, you were ready for the yeah yeah just didn't have the maybe the confidence or something yeah. to or your answering machine broke <laughs> yeah, right. or something yeah i just i miss answering machines i try to bring up and you know i try to just bring up things like dial tone and answering machines as often as possible i desperately miss that world yeah. that that was a good world yeah. yeah that was a really good one before the dawn of all the smartphone that was a really good world Oh, the the joy of dial tone. There's just there's just something about it. It was really you know that remember that scene in adaptation where Meryl Streep is listening to the dial tone while she's she's just done the uh, the substance the green substance, and she's listening she's listening to the dial tone and she's trying to hum along with it. And it's like it's like the arm of the universe. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's really good. It's really good. So, so um, I wanted to tell you about this. So, so shortly after, I th or maybe this was around the time I discovered Anais Nin. Um, I was in this dreadful car accident. So I was twenty. I was in this terrible, terrible car accident. Not my fault. I was in the hospital. And so I got money from the other party, from you know insurance, because I'd been injured. And I took that money and ran off to England to go see some punk rock. Yeah. Now this is before the smartphone, so the the umbilical cord is well and truly cut, right? Because I don't I don't know if young people today can understand what it is to not have some some connection i'm i'm the only you know i have my brit rail pass and i have cash on my person and i have a backpack but i went to i went to england to to go watch punk rock 
back. Uh-huh. And um, the 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 show that really um, got me. So so I'm from you know I'm from LA. So I've got je- I'm wearing jeans and a t-shirt. My hair's like a long blonde hair. And I go into the club, and it is full of punk rockers with the, you know, the foot-high mohawks and the purple and the green, and they were terrified of me. <laughs> they were terrified. These punk rock boys came up to me, and just they they looked at me like I was an absolute alien. Like what was I doing, you know, going into their territory? And I said. Hi, and they they ran away, <laughs> and but I made my way to the stage, and it was a Susie and the Banshees oh, show. It so I I made my way all to the all the way to that stage through the mosh pit. So yeah. I was up at the front, and I have a photo from that show. It was like a religious experience for wow. me. It was a religious experience. It was, it was just like I had, you know, I was, I had been blind, but then I could see uh-huh. kind of thing, yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, so I traveling around Europe. Uh, tr- first, first, the first trip uh, was on a train, a Brit Rail, and while on the Brit Rail. I went all over that island. So I went, you know, I went all the way south. I went all the way north to Inverness, Scotland. I I went all over that train. And while on the train, I would meet people. And because those were the days. days. You would, you, because you don't have your, I don't have a smartphone. I would always have a book and my little journal. So I'd either be reading my little book or writing in my little journal or looking out the window as just miles and miles of green rolling hills with little sheep, you know, so beautiful. Or someone would sit across from me and I would, you know, if if we could get in a conversation, it would be amazing because they were often, you know, British or they were from another country or something. And we would just compare notes on life. And that, you know, or we'd get off, we'd get off and we would walk around Stonehenge. Or um, later when I was traveling all over Europe by myself for a couple months with a backpack, I had been in Spain and a guy got, let's see, I think I was way down in the south. And I think it about Madrid, a guy got on the, around my age, a guy got on the, train and sat across from me and we started talking and we talked all the way to Paris and he was amazing he was from Norway um, and it, w- it was just this incredible conversation so we he it was we talked for hours and hours and at one point we that he got up to use the restroom and I saw that he was really limping badly and his arm, I hadn't noticed this, but his arm was curled and he came back and he realized maybe he should explain and he explained that he had had this stroke. He had been a professional athlete. Wow. He'd been, I believe it was a soccer player and he had had a stroke when he was 25 years old and he'd, he that ended his career and he explained the whole thing to me so we had this really deep conversation about you know life and and when life 
takes you in a direction you're not expecting. He was expecting to that his soccer career was going to continue. Well, then we we were both getting off in Paris. I'm going to actually hang out in Paris for a bit. He's just going to be getting out for a few hours because then he's going to go on his merry way to you know up up. I suppose coming home, and we. I got off the train. I think we said, I think we said goodbye, and then we were standing there in the train station, and we 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 kind of run into each other in the train station, and we're like, "Hi," and I I said something like, "Where are you going?" He's, "I'm just hanging out," and he said, "Why don't we just walk around together?" So that was sort of the seed for it later much yeah. later for before sunrise yes yes that's what that's what i was thinking because i because i knew about uh before you, your work on before sunrise and i i have never heard the uh the inspiration for the story which is fantastic yeah wow. yeah i just i i had amazing experiences traveling alone yeah. i think that's the key yeah. i think traveling alone yeah. i met um for example, I met a female in Spain, and we got off the train together, and we, we hung out in uh, Sevilla for, and went to, went to go see flamenco and all that. We did that for a few days together. So, I, I that was the the seed of that idea was, um, uh, you know, my experience traveling around first England on my own, and then Europe on my own for a couple months. So. So it, that, trains are the greatest things. Yeah. They're just great. And I got to say, um, I am so glad you went to Europe because thank you, because I loved all of those movies and they may never have happened if you didn't go on, if you weren't on a train with a Norwegian dude who had a stroke. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I love history and I love literature and I wanted to go see where a bunch of the literature, I, I well, I went to Anna Eastman's. Uh-huh. I, I found, of course, you know, I had to do this, right? Oh, yeah. So at that point. Is she, bur- is she buried in Paris or no? No, her ashes are scattered off oh. off the coast of L.A. In, oh, okay. um, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Her ashes are scattered out there. Yeah. So, but I went to Paris to go uh, track down where she lived. So she had, she and her husband had been living in this lovely apartment in Paris. But then the uh, the stock market crashed. He had been a banker, and the stock market crashed, and so they lost. Their apartment, they had to give up their car. They had to go find uh, more affordable accommodations. So they they went. They moved to a suburb called Lucien, in outside of Paris, about thirty minutes outside of Paris. Yeah. So I ha- went to Lucien, and I found the house. Now it was not occupied at the time. There were weeds overgrown with weeds. I was skinny enough then to squeeze in the gate and wade my way through all of these tall weeds, hoping that none of the neighbors saw me. This was a, a, a house that was over, well over 200 years old. It was the place where, I think it's Madame du Barry's head was thrown during the revolution in the 1770s. Um, so I am tiptoeing my way around this unoccupied house there are wild cats jumping around in the weeds and I am looking at the windows I go around the back and I realized if I climbed up on something I could squeeze my arm through the little parting in the window and get the latch and undo the latch and 
pull my way up and like tumble into the house. So I got in the house. And you got to know that the first place I went to was to find where she had lunch with Henry Miller. Oh, wow. Because that's the house that he met her at. He, he had been kind of, I mean, penniless, yeah. right? A penniless American, a bit of a vagabond, yeah. um, trying to become a novelist yeah. and really sponging off of people. And he had heard that there was, you know, there was a lunch invitation by this banker's wife. And he thought, oh, great, you know, I'll get a good lunch because he didn't get to eat enough. They go, he and his friend um, drive out to Lucien. And lo and behold, the banker's wife and he, who seemed to have, you know, Anaïs and Henry, who seemed to have absolutely nothing in common. He's, he's this guy from Brooklyn. He's rough. And, you know, he's, 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 um, he's, he's a, um, not, not a genteel man. And this very petite, genteel, lovely, chic woman, their souls clicked at that table so i had to find that table and there was the, the, ta- table. the table was still there the table there wasn't a lot of furniture but the table was there oh the table was there yeah. please tell me it's in your apartment in la right now well no <laughs> but i got a little chunk of the chandelier that hung over the table <laughs> yeah, yeah. you got to bring something back yeah, i got a little chunk of the chandelier I, now i'm hoping part of the story is and i lived there for three years and nobody noticed you know what I, that would have been heaven it was it, I went all over that. I was afraid that someone was going to catch me, right? Yeah, I was yeah. afraid that the police were going to come knocking on the door. And at the same, in those days, you don't know what the laws are of the country. You don't know if you're breaking something that's huge and you're going to end up in French prison or right, something. Right, you know? right. <laughs> you know? yeah. right uh, uh, just a dumb American here, you know. Exactly. Please, please, America. Yeah, right. So exactly. I, I didn't, I didn't <laughs> know. So I was running, kind of going through the house. I had a little, you know, those little automatic cameras that did take the best pictures. But another thing I noticed um, that she had described in detail in her first, in the first diary that was published in uh, 66, it's called uh, The Diary of Anna Eastman, Volume 1. She described uh, the the place in detail. And she had... um, painted the walls and each room was painted for a different mood you know one room for for her her work another room for dining another in the descriptions were so beautiful of like the turquoise room and the orange room and the mauve room and so I went and I looked at the peeling paint and I could see the layers and layers and layers and I could get back to the original paint. I didn't peel it. I was just looking because it was peeling away now. But I could see the paint from her paint job. So, yeah, it was like a pilgrimage. Oh, my God. It, I'm just like, <laughs> I don't even know what to say. I'm, I, what, what am I hosting this show? I'm just like, I'm lost in these stories. That is so cool. Oh, yeah. my God. Unbelievably yeah. cool for me. How? Oh, so let's get back to, is it, okay, I always get his name wrong. Anna, Anais, I get wrong, and Rink, Rick Linkletter, right? Linklater. Linklater. Yeah. How did you connect with him uh, did, and, get, and get the stories of essentially your experience? So I had been, I was living in Austin at the time. I I left L.A. because you would understand this. I wanted to hightail it out of here after the whole JW thing, right? Right. So I wanted to go to a place where they, 
I could get away from that. And I was about 21 years old at that point, and I had left that religion. And I wanted to go to a place where there was a sense of community, Austin, Texas. Um, I had I had visited in the spring, and you know the blue bonnets were blooming. I didn't realize the place got to a hundred degrees in the summer, but you know it was a cute little, really cute, friendly little community. So I went to Austin, and I was in that point. At that point, I was in grad school for literature and and um, psychology, and I heard from I was working as a proofreader at the Capitol, and I heard that. A little, a little college film was being. They were casting a little college Black film. Man. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah, and that they were, they were casting. I remember I told my workmate, "Well, I've never acted, so you know, I'm probably not right for it." And the the workmate said, "Oh, it doesn't matter. You don't have to have experience. You know, just go, just go meet the guy. You know, they're, they're just casting." So I went and met with uh, Rick Linklater, and. Um, he just asked me about myself, and I told him I was working on my master's thesis, which was on Anais Nin, and it was called Anais Nin and the Psychology of Creativity. And um, that's it. You know, we just had a friendly little conversation, and then I found out he had cast me. So he put me in. Were you in Slacker? Yes. Oh my God. Yeah, I was. There's a scene where there are three females in a in a little cafe. Wow. Uh, Les Amis. In, uh, in Austin and we're having a conversation about relationships yeah. and that our conversation our our dialogue in the film was based on a real conversation that that we had when I met the other actresses in the in the scene we had a little conversation about relationships and so that's that's that is what the scene is is our you know our, our conversation hey the one thing is is um, Rick asked me to just make mine a little bit more little bit more cynical and the other girl Anique she was supposed to be a little bit more fanciful uh, after we did after I did that um, Rick cast me in Days and Confused okay. as a teacher yeah. and I did that bicentennial spiel uh-huh. in, the, in that but he knew that I was finishing my master's degree on Anais and then he kept asking me, can I read it, can I read it? I really wasn't taking it seriously. But finally, one day, he said, well, have you finished it? And I had finished it. He said, well, can I please read it? And so I gave it to him on a Monday. He called me on a Tuesday, asked to meet me on a Wednesday. I met with him on a Wednesday, and he said, will you write a movie with me? And I said, I've never written a movie. Yeah. And he said, that doesn't matter. I, I can see that you can write. And so I said, well, what's it about? And he said, I have no idea. Wow. He said, I just want it to be some sort of boy-girl deal. Yeah, yeah. And he said, I just need to finish post-production on Dazed. Uh-huh. So he finished the post-production, and then he called me one day and said, I'm ready to go. Yeah. And so we, he came to my place. Um, I remember it was kind of late in the evening. It was, it was in April. We met at my place and we brainstormed for about, I'd say about a week. And the, I remember that first day he said, well, I just know, you know, it's a, a boy and a girl. And I said, what about a train situation? Because you meet someone on a train and then you have to part from them. And so that gives us the beginning and the end. Yeah. And that was it. So from there on, he and I just, we brainstormed relationships and what people talk about when they meet. Yeah. And 
um, at one point, then we moved over to his apartment and we started typing it into his computer. Uh, and and the whole process was very short. It was about 16, 16 days or so to, to come up with our first draft. Uh-huh. So that, it, that was a really a strange experience because, no, you know, as you know, it's really, really hard to get a movie made. Oh, yeah. And here, my first experience, so I had no idea that was, it was, I had no idea how lucky I was. Yeah. I was super fortunate. And um, a year later, it, it had been cast, and they'd found the funding in um, Vienna, Austria. And, um, and they were, so they were, we, we, we wrote it uh, April, April, May, 93. It was shot like June, July, 94. And then, then it came out in, I believe it was uh, February of 95. And it was, it was, um, you know, a small, you know, a, 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 a personal little film. Yeah. Not a big, we're not talking a big tentpole film here, but. I, well, I loved it. And then looking back at it now after do it, you know, after working on some film stuff, I just, I didn't realize how great the casting was with Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy and just how they, even on all three films, they seem like they're just improvising and it's just, no, that's a script, you know, for the most part. They, we, Rick and I had originally uh, thought that it might be shot in America, yeah. maybe on Amtrak. Uh, we, we didn't know. It was just a matter of where you get the funding. Right. And, when Ethan Hawke showed interest in it, he, uh, Rick, and I, and I then needed to find a European actress. So that's where Julie came in. Yeah. She was a French actress who, at the time, um, was was doing some interesting stuff. So, oh, how fun! How fun! How fun was that? Just, just, um, did you did you get to watch like the different cuts during post, or did you only get to the see the final cut when um, of uh, before sunrise? Well, let's see. I I was involved in the rehearsal process, um, and then I went to Vienna, and I saw a little bit of the filming. I discovered, you know, that it's interesting. the The writer is not particularly respected in right. the in the feature film world, unlike in say plays or t- TV. The TV writer is very respected. The feature film writer is not necessarily wanted around, yeah. right? Yeah. So I, I had a different experience, but that's good. Uh, yeah, I didn't even know how lucky I was. People are like, "What? You got to write the script? You have to be on set? They sent you roughs?" I'm just yeah. like, "Yeah." <laughs> yeah, it was kind of a big deal that yeah. I got to be on the set at all. Yeah. Yeah. And then when I when I got there, Rick um, and I went sightseeing, and we saw some of the you know looked at some of the spots where uh, scenes were going to be filmed or had been filmed. Um, trying to remember what I after that what I remember seeing uh, one of the final cuts of the film in Austin in in one of our theaters where. It was empty at the time. It was like in the morning before the the you know people were before the films were starting for the public, and I remember sitting there with just they were maybe about five of us the the editor you know the producer, um, and I remember when the Columbia lady with her torch oh, yeah, came yeah. on. <laughs> I remember. I remember feeling a little teary, like, wow, it's real. I cannot believe this. And, and seeing my dialogue coming out of the characters' mouths because 
that that I a lot of that was based on me, you know, my experience and based on my my character. So based on my life and so um, I remember it was it was a bit shocking we then a bit later the the film was at Sundance and it was I don't know what do they call the big opening thing for Sundance the big opening film it was their it was their opener and uh, Robert Redford came out and did a little talk about it and we were told that it was very rare for him that he had not done that in a long time and that it meant that he really liked the film and that was a big moment because in in my house growing up, Robert Redford and and uh, Steve McQueen and Paul Newman were you know the Godhead you yeah, know yeah. right they were like the Trinity. So when one of them gets up and and sanctions my little my little thing, yeah. I just felt like oh my God this is it was yeah. it was amazing, but but it also is kind of what you were talking about earlier where. It was out of me at that point. It was, I had already processed it and I had come to terms and it was out in the world and I really was, in a weird way, I wasn't feeling it. Do you know what I mean? Oh, totally. Yeah. It doesn't feel, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, didn't, it doesn't feel real on every level. Even when a book comes out and then, you know, I was like, oh, okay, now where's the parade? And it's just like, no, your book just came out you got to show up and do some readings. It's. Yeah. And then the film, it's just like, oh, wait, people can just see it. It's, yeah, it's kind of a mind fuck. But then yeah. at the same, at, I don't think, I don't think, uh, yeah, I think if I knew, like, all the numbers, I'd be like, oh, my God, that's too little or what? that's way too big. Yeah. It's so scary to kind of think who has access to it. And then I, I kind of have to put that out of my head. I just, yeah. And for me, there's a total difference between my writing self and the self that comes out and talks like I am now. Yeah, yeah. They're two very different. I My writing self, I think, might be... I'm not sure where my true self is. Let me think about that. But my writing self is really sensitive. And the, the part that has to come out and say the business... I, I don't care for business very much. I just don't care for it. And the part that has to come out, and I don't concern myself, you know, numbers and money, and I right. don't like it. I don't like it. So the part that has to come out um, has to put on armor. Yeah. And that's, that's the, so the armor, I think, is on the more sensitive self that can be really hurt. You know, it's, it's really... But that's the hurt part is where the good stuff is. So, God, switching from one to the other is, is not easy. Yeah. And I admire when I see, uh, when I see these um, actors coming out and having to do press and do the press junket, I don't think people know it's, it, it's hard to go, you know, and for writers especially, because writers are a different breed. Yeah. Writers are often introverted. Yeah. And to come out and talk about yourself and talk about your process is not always very easy, you yeah. know. And you, you do have to put on really thick skin yeah. and, and somehow detach yourself. But, but I found that with, you know, I remember going to meetings right after before sunrise. I had, I had some insane thing like 40 meetings in one week. And I had, you know, I, at the time I wasn't living in L.A., so I'm staying in a whatever with people friends or something I'm 40 meetings I'm racing in a rental car and having to talk about business with people and they're asking me things like well do you know how much it made this weekend no idea why would I care you're talking to a writer I don't care about that stuff the minute we do we're 
we're shit, we're done. It's it's not our world. Yeah. Uh, we think that's nonsense. Yeah. You, I know, I know they think this, and I remember a guy explaining it to me. He's like, you, you have to, you know, you have to, you know, open the blah, blah. It has to have a certain number, and you have to be at the top five. Or what? I have no idea what you're talking. About. I don't want to know. If I start caring about that. I will lose something that that makes me happy, yeah. and when I'm laying on my deathbed, I, the main thing I want is to have had a happy, meaningful life, and I don't care about whatever numbers you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah, we're not going to be crunching numbers on our deathbed, going, "Wait, what was what what number were we at in uh, 1994 on that film?" It's more going to be like. Who's here to hold my hand as I'm going off this yeah. planet? Exactly. Like, who did we connect with? Yeah. Who did we did we did we did we have any connections? Yeah. Did we did we do good? Yeah. Did we did we help in you know any? I mean, was there any meaning? Did we create any meaning? Yeah. I mean, it it'd be fantastic to touch as many people as possible, but you can touch people. Uh, like on a day-to-day basis, mm-hmm. you know, that maybe the person in the grocery store is having, you know, is getting out of Jehovah's Witnesses that day, and all they need is someone to look them in the eye and be kind to them, yeah. and you have no clue, but you just saved their life, yeah. you know, or may or maybe you wrote something and someone never tells you that they read what you wrote or they saw your movie, but that really inspired them to. I, I don't know to take a new b- direction in their life, or to 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 just keep going. I mean, I, I, I'm hoping I'm hoping like people don't lose sight of what's important. I worry that in our current culture, people are a little too worried about like fame and branding. If I hear oh. if I hear branding again, I'm oh gonna well, no, I'm not gonna say I'm gonna shoot myself because I'd have to do it in about ten minutes because I'd walk by someone going, so what's your brand? And I'd be like. Ugh. I know. Is it the second you can define that? It's like that's kind of scary. That's really scary, yeah. isn't it? it what, what? Yeah. The um, it's it's so strange just to think. Like even even doing this podcast, I don't. You know, people are like, "Oh, how much money you're making?" I'm like, "Well, I don't make money on this. This is for fun. I don't. I don't know how to." That's kind of like you know. I know that's my problem. I need to kind of seek outside help, but I can't even think about that because I want to not think about having to do something for. Um, for something larger. I just want to have conversations. And then sometimes I don't even care if the audience likes it or not. This is a fantastic conversation. This is my favorite part of the process. And then hopefully someone listens, you know. I, you know, I know you, you teach at UCLA Extension. I used to teach at UCLA Extension as well. And I had a student in a creative writing class I taught. This was a while back. And I said to the class that a lot of what I wrote was never going to be seen by anybody. I was doing it for myself. And a girl said, why would you do that when you can make money? And I thought, is this not the most ridiculous? This is not why. First of all, it's a lot harder to get paid than this person realized. It's not easy to sell something, especially in the Hollywood world. And it's not easy to get a book published. It's not these things. It's not easy to sell an article. These things are hard. But even if that was true, don't you write just to sort of save yourself? Oh, to, to make sense of things. I, I think that's the only way that I can put sense on my myself, who I am, and what it, everything is around me. I, I, if I'm not writing, I'm not a very good person to be around. I think for the most part, I just want to be a nice person to be around, so I have to write. 
and then so then I'm okay to be around later in the day. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. I I tell my students. So now I'm teaching at a another school. I tell my students. We create, you know, whether it be a story or whatever, we'll create a dance, a building, whatever we're creating. We're creating to, like, life is a bit chaotic and sometimes harsh. And we have all these amorphous feelings, amorphous feelings, and we need to create some sort of structure and create um, meaning out of our amorphous feelings so we create a dance or a song or in our cases a story that gives that make like like you said makes sense makes sense because if we didn't do that we would go straight bonkers right amen kim <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show did we uh, uh, did we hit all of your you, you, you brought a little we hit your yeah, point. you yes, had talking yes, i was so did. glad that you're like organized it was so great and i was like don't be organized but and then we just let it go Kim, thank you for being on the show. Oh, it was such a pleasure for me to meet you, Tony. I, did, I can't believe how much we have in common. It's weird. <laughs> it's weird. Kim Krizan on Drinks with Tony. Check out her book, Spy in the House of Anais Nin. Anais Nin. I'm going to keep screwing that up. Hey, you want even more Kim Krizan? Well, check out the film she wrote with uh, Rich Linklater, Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, and Before mi Midnight. Oh, want to see her act? Check out Dazed and Confused. Even more? Slacker. What? Yeah. Hey, thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony. Uh, come back next week. Subscribe if you haven't subscribed already on iTunes, uh, Spotify, all that fun stuff. Rate us. Give us a rating. Whatever you feel. It's all about, um, it's all about the stars. All right. And next week, another rock star. Literary genius, I'm sure. And also my guest. <laughs> Have a great week. Oh, God, I'm dumb sometimes. <laughs>